Okay, this morning I'm going to turn to a, a few scriptures. And what we want to talk about this morning, get into, is what we got into a little bit yesterday about the humanity of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So, what we want to read first is, we want to see here in, in John, the first chapter, in verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the word. Now in the beginning here is speaking of eternity. And the only way we can try and describe it is by saying eternity past. Okay? But eternity is. <laughs> really, eternity is. And we've said before that the great parenthesis for time is eternity. That's always been. And all around it. And so in the beginning... In John 1, verse 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God. And we've, we've stated before what this word with is, is pros, it's P-R-O-S. And that word means this affectionate, eternal embrace exchange of the Father with the Son that nothing could disturb or distract. That's that little word, with. <laughs> and the, Because the word, logos, was with God, theos, and the word, hologos, was with, was God. The same, it says, was in the beginning with God. Okay, now the beginning here is when we, God is revealing these things to us in time that are eternal truths. Now we go to verse 14 in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, it says this in verse 14. And the word... This whole Logos, this, the, the very Son of God in terms of deity, was made, didn't never became, but was made flesh, made flesh, put on humanity here. And we're going to get into that this morning because everything about that has to do with our eternal destiny. And dwelt among us, meaning he lived like us. We need to make that clear. He, he dwelt among us, meaning he was hungry, he was thirsty, he had to work, he had to sleep, he got tired, and uh, he felt pain, he felt rejection, he felt all of these things in his particular humanity. He dwelt among us. Again, when he dwelt among us, we have to keep in mind in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, there was no beauty, outward beauty, physical beauty, that we would desire him. So the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, filled up with all that grace and truth is. That's what it says in the original. Now, when it says that, it was, it was teaching. John is saying that the Holy Spirit allowed them, through their submission, to see <clears throat> the glory of Christ. This goes into the type that we have talked about before and God has made clear to us in teaching in Numbers, the fourth chapter. The tabernacle was made of badger skins. It wasn't very much to look, no beauty in terms of on the outward appearance. But inside, it was gorgeous, made of all the finest materials. And that is speaking here in the type of Jesus Christ. He is that tabernacle, because really when it says the word was made flesh, it says he tabernacled himself. 
and humanity. And all the glory of God that filled up the grace and truth that God is was dwelling with him and also in him and also in Colossians 2 and verse 9 where it says in, in the King James he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Greek makes it very clear that he was filled up with all of who God is. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he was filled up with all of who God is in terms of his deity as the Son of God in his humanity. And that's what it's bringing out here. It was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father in terms of his deity. And we must remember in the scriptures that when the Son of God put on humanity, he never left the bosom of the Father in his deity, but yet entered into humanity. And it was, we beheld his glory, and that's what they're saying. They saw way more than just his physical appearance. Because that's going to be brought out. We can see this in Matthew, the 17th chapter, and you'll see those first five verses when Peter, James, and John were with him on the mount, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him. His glory was coming through his physical humanity. He was... It was an amazing thing that was that they were seeing. But they saw that by faith, even before the Mount of Transfiguration, and that's what that's called there. So again, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, and He was filled up with all that grace and truth is. Now the Scriptures also bring this out in Luke, the first chapter. We can see that when... Gabriel, the angel, uh, appeared to this little 14-year-old peasant girl because that's, uh, that was her approximate age, and she was a little nobody, <laughs> just a little 14-year-old virgin peasant girl that, that uh, God had in his plan to have his son born in her, but how? And how was he, bo how was he born in her? And this is brought out in Luke 1 and verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. Very unique way, and only him. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. Ultimately, this will happen during millennial reign. He was rejected during his physical first advent in John 1 verse 11. But here it says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, which is Israel, because we must remember that in the 32nd chapter of uh, Genesis, his name was changed from Jacob to what? Israel. Changed from a cunning man into Israel, a prince, one who rules under the king, Jesus Christ. So here it says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob in Luke 1 and verse 33, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, how will this be, seeing I know not a man? She's not had relationship. She was a spouse to Joseph as a virgin, but yet had not consummated marriage yet. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. And also that Holy One, I don't, 
I refuse to say thing. I just can't say that in certain translations. That Holy One, which will be born of you, will be called the Son of God. And so we see very clearly here this amazing difference. This difference is also brought out, also brought out in Hebrews, the fourth chapter and 14. It says that seeing then that we have a great high priest, that's us, who we are in Christ in this, this uh, grace period that we're in. We have the church. We have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Notice he passed into the heavens. And we're going to see how that happened. He passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The proper word here is confession in, in the Greek language. It's not profession. And some translations will say profession. But no, a confession is based upon the life that we have in Christ, the life that he is in us. And that's our proper confession. Verse 15 says this, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, meaning in his humanity he felt everything. He felt pain. He felt sorrow. He felt rejection. He felt hunger and thirst. We know that all through the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also in the Gospel of John. He, he, he was human. He was very God, truly God, and, and very man, truly man in humanity. But here it says this, but was in all points, what? He was tested because he was never tempted. Jesus was never tempted to sin because we know he was not, he was not, he never had a sin nature. He had a human nature. And this, these things are very, very important. And they have to do with our eternal salvation and our image. And they're very, very, very foundational and very important. But was in all points tested like as we. And why does it say that? We are in Christ, are we not? When we receive Christ, we were born again, brand new in John 3, 3 through 6. We're born again. We have a new nature in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. All things have passed away. All these things are now new in him. We're brand new. We have a brand new image based upon this new nature that we have. And so God does, now that we're in Christ, will God ever tempt us? Never. God cannot be tempted with evil in James 1 and verse 13. Neither tempts he any man. That's why it says in James 1, 12, blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he's tried. You see, God tries us. He never tempts us. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. See? And again, <clears throat> here, the crown of life just means we reign with him. If, and we, in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer with him right now, what do we do? We will reign with him. Right? But if we deny him, and that's not teaching, again, salvation, it's, it's teaching fellowship. He will also deny us. Now, so here it says, he was, he was in all points tested like as we. He was tested. His test was far different than ours. Far different. It was a, he had to learn in his impeccable humanity. Now the word impeccable, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's not liable to sin. Because if you don't have a sin nature, which he never had, which he never had, you can't be tempted by sin, can you? 
never can be. He was never tempted to live in disobedience. He lived in constant, instant obedience to the Father. And that's what John 8 verse 29 brings out. He always pleased the Father. And again, it was stated through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 and verse 3. Okay, so when it says he was tempted, he was tempted, it's wrong. He was tested like as we. God tests our dependence on him. Now, his test was different. He constantly, he had to learn, we see this, and we see this in these scriptures, though, and, and even here in, in Hebrews 5 and verse 8, it says, though he were a son, the very son of God, yet he learned obedience in his humanity. He had to learn it because he was God. Never had to learn obedience, but in humanity, he had to learn it. He had to learn it. In, in the fact of how he would fulfill everything for us as that sin sacrifice. And he would be the just, he would be the just dying for the unjust in 1 Peter 3.18, thus leading us to God. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God the Father made him, Jesus Christ the Son, to be the sin sacrifice for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's what that's teaching. So he was tested like as we. God never tempts us. We know who does. God never violates our free will, ever. The enemy in temptation constantly violates free will. And the enemy constantly wants to violate us in who we are in our perfect image. Remember in John 4 and verse 34, Jesus Christ, he what? His whole meat, his whole sustenance was to what? Do the will of the Father, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 47 and 8. He delighted to do his will constantly. Everything was a delight for him in pleasing the Father to do his will. To fulfill the will of the Father and not only in terms of propitiation, but to be a proper, holy, pure substitute for all those that would receive him, thus being reconciled to God through him. And so here, again, it says that we te- he was tested like as we. His test was different. Our test is, will we, will we trust the flesh and go back into the flesh and, Satan and, and be ruled by Satan in the flesh? Or will we trust God? That's our test. He never had that test. We know that even based upon Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 11, when he was tempted, he was tempted of the devil. Could he be tempted? Could the devil tempt him? No. So who was really on trial there in the wilderness? And by the way, it was not just three, uh, three days and three nights. It was 40 days. And we see everything that the enemy would tempt us with had absolutely no effect on him because he lived in in supreme and absolute instant obedience to his father. And that's what made him to be and allowed him to be the substitute for us to go on Calvary, propitiate the father and become the substitute with all of our sins upon him and the sins of only those who would receive him would be dealt with. He had to be the pure sacrifice of God. Again, that's brought out in Numbers, the 19th chapter, in those first two verses. Because when it talks about submission there, it's a red heifer. 
That's a female. But even in that sense, he submitted constantly to the Father. He was spotless. That red heifer had to be spotless and never have a yoke on it. We have shared recently through the Word, as the Holy Spirit is, is teaching us, all of us, and bringing us to a proper place, that Christ never had a yoke in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. He never had a yoke. He never needed to be restrained. He never had a sin nature, ever. He had a human nature that was in constant obedience to the Father. Furthermore, that's why it says in Revelations 13 and verse 8, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Before, before Adam ever fell, before sin ever entered into humanity, ever. It was already done in God's mind. And the work in his eternal mind in Hebrews 4 and verse 3 was finished, completed, finished. He came and he had to fulfill it, yes, and he did in his impeccable humanity as the Son of God. And remember, he's the Son of God by virtue of his deity. He became the Son of Man by virtue of him leading a whole brand new race of people in himself and thus bringing us to the Father. So when it says this, he was tested like as we, yet without sin. And we must remember sin here is sin nature. It doesn't say sins. That's why in John 1 and verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He didn't take away the sins of every human being. That's even brought out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. Because it says there, the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge if one died, Christ, then why? Why did one, Christ, have to die? Because all were dead. And then it says, but they that live, and who are those that have received Christ as their very life, their very substitute, thus being reconciled to God and given a brand new nature and a brand new image. And that's why it states that. He dealt with that in propitiation in John 1 and verse 29. He, he made it potentially possible for everyone to be able to choose the fact that Christ would deal with their sins. Because again, if it was otherwise, wouldn't it be God violating our free will? And would God ever do that? Never. Never. That's why he said again to the Pharisees in John 8 and verse 21 and John 8 and verse 24, you will die in your sins. <laughs> and that's why there is a judgment seat and, and a great white throne Remember, the Bema seat for believers is not a judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and in 1 Corinthians 3.13-15. It's not. It's a manifestation seat and a reward seat. <laughs> and everything else that wasn't of that reward and of that new life is we see is consumed. We're seeing the reality of it there. And that's why there's no terror at, at, the, at, the, at the Bema seat uh, the manifestation seat, but there will be in Revelations 20, 11 to 15 because their sins were not dealt with. They're judged for their works and their works apart from Christ only enter into what? Sins. So we see this very, very clearly. And this has to do with, the, with this impeccable, perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. And that's why it says in verse 16, let us, Christians, therefore come boldly, say boldly, without any fear, in 2 Timothy 1.7, has God given us the spirit of fear? 
No. What is fear? It's a, it's a spirit. It's a demonic spirit. It's not the normal Christian life to live in fear about a single thing. Not one thing. But of power. And who's our power in 1 Peter 1 and verse 5 and 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24? It's Christ. We are kept by the power of God in 1 Peter 1 and verse 5. And it's Christ in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24. Christ, the power of God and what? Wisdom of God. And is there any fear in the wisdom of God and in his love? Never. And so that's why there's, we're, we're to have boldness in the day of judgment. We, and we, right now, we're to boldly come to the throne of grace to, find that, to obtain mercy and find grace right in the nick of time. And that's why in 1 John 4 and verse 17, we're to have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? There isn't any for us. We're going to see what was already judged, and we'll see that at the Bema Seat, the wood, hay, and stubble. <clears throat> because as he is, Christ right now, so are we. What does that mean? He loves us just like he loves his son. And there's no fear in love in 1 John 4 and verse 18, because love that's perfected and completed everything about us casts out fear because fear has torment, calasis, torture. And he that fears is not experiencing what love has completed about him and positioned him in in Christ. It's beautiful. So that's why it says that. Now, when Adam fell, and we know that, <clears throat> we know that in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, when Adam fell, okay, sin entered his humanity. He, he was just as human before the fall and just as human after the fall. But the difference was that sin entered into his humanity. It never entered into Christ because he had to be the spotless lamb. This was brought out in Exodus 12, 1 through 13. It had to be a spotless lamb. And they would have feast on it. They would have feast on it. They were to take the, the hyssop there in Exodus 12, again, 1 through 13. They were to dip it in the blood. And this speaks of faith. And they were to strike the two side posts and the lentil. And that speaks of the blood being applied on our heart. They would go in and feast on the lamb with bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs there is, in, as we grow in grace in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, there will be godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10 but it's never with regret. Worldly sorrow gives us plenty of regret. And this is part of our growth and part of our confession in 1 John 1 and verse 9. It's not just a light thing that we just flippantly do. And again, 1 John 1, 9 is not, we're not praying for forgiveness where it's part of our confession in our growth that we are no longer our sin or our failure. But there is some sorrow involved in that, but it's never with regret. Ever, you see? And, and that's the, the holiness and purity of his love. Uh, uh, manifesting an, an incredible truth upon us in that confession uh, as being in Christ. So when Adam fell, he was just as human. The humanity didn't change, but sin entered into the humanity, and that's what was passed on. The, the sin nature, and that's brought out even in Romans the fifth chapter, and in verse 12. The sin nature was passed on 
by the 23 reproductive chromosome genes of the male sperm, it's carried on because in Leviticus uh, 17 and verse 11, the life of the flesh, the body, physical body, is in the blood. You see that? And that was tainted. Sin entered in and tainted it. The humanity entered into humanity. But that never happened with Christ. You see? Because his humanity is, was even different even before Adam's humanity, even before he fell, when he was created in innocence. Because that was even different. Because remember, Christ in his pre-incarnate state, what did he do? He formed Adam's humanity from the dust of the ground. But was that what, how Christ's humanity was formed in the womb of that 14-year-old peasant girl? No. But it was human. But totally different. And of course, even after it, he had no sin nature. So this teaches us to understand Christ as this substitute, as this perfect, complete sacrifice. And because the fact of the matter is, if, if there had been one taint of sin, if he had had a sin nature, would he have been a proper sacrifice? If he had sin, and you can't sin if you don't have a sin nature. Do we sin in who we are in Christ? Never. Where do we sin? We go back to the flesh and experience it. Now, all of those sins, are they even future, and God forbid that we, we should even fail? And 1 John 2, 1 and 2 even goes into that where it says, my little children, see that you sin not. The original makes it very clear. You don't have to sin. You choose to sin. We've said before and been taught by the scriptures that love is in the will. It's not an emotion. Love is in the will. It's a choice. God chose to love us. His love for us and everything about us has to do with his will. And his will was set free to love us because his love and his justice, which you can't separate, was dealt with by Christ on Calvary. It was completely and utterly dealt with. And that's why, that's why God the Father was free to love us in the perfection of the sacrifice of his Son. And so we see very, very clearly these truths that are brought out in the Bible, see? He was never, ever. And furthermore, too, and we understand in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Jesus never did away with his deity. He laid aside the outward expression of it. Never. But yet it abode in him. It abode in him. But yet we see again in Matthew 17, 1 through 5, where we see his glory. He was, his glory was, was emanating. The glory of who he was and his deity was emanating through his humanity. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that when God became a man in Christ Jesus, he removed all distance between us and God. Now he has to remove all distance from us. And there's where we grow with proper teaching, and we know in Romans 8 and verse 9, we have the flesh in us, but are we of it any longer? And there's where the separation and truth of the word in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, that separating process, so that we don't live 
like the world, the world only lives in self-consciousness. Everything about this world system and the flesh, and it is my flesh that's in me that I'm not of, is it any different than the unsaved? No. But in my flesh, I can live just like the unsaved. I can like the things that they like. But is that who we are of any longer? Never, never, never. And so when we live in self-consciousness, apart from who we are in Christ, we live just like the animal kingdom. They're a dichotomous being. Everything is about self and what you can gain from this world, how you dress, your money, what you look like. Everything about that is self-consciousness. Nothing to do with God. That's why it says for the unsaved and for us when we choose to live in the flesh that we're not of, it says in Psalm 10 and verse 4, makes it very clear, it says God is not in all their thoughts. We've said before, it's not teaching that God is in some of their thoughts. It makes it clear that God is not, God is not in any of their thought whatsoever. And that's why it says in Psalm 50 and verse 21, you thought in your fallen humanity, in your unsaved or in your flesh, I was such a one like you. See, these were all the works, all the false teaching comes in. You thought I was such a one as yourself, but I will come and set it in order. And who is God's order? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. That's brought out in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not the author of confusion. He's not. But of what? Life. Who is our life? It's Christ. And peace. Who is our peace in Ephesians 2 and verse 14? Does the world have peace? Never. Because Jesus said in John 14, 27, I give you my peace, not as the world gives. You will never have peace living in the flesh. The unsaved will never experience peace. You don't get peace by a bank account. You don't get peace by a job. You don't get peace by how you dress. Furthermore, it's just covering the lack of what we, what we would not have uh, unsaved. And then in our fallen experience, of which we're no longer, there wouldn't be any peace there. When I live in the flesh, I choose to allow the flesh to dictate to me, is there any peace there? Never. So 1 Corinthians 14, 40, God does what? All things what? Decently, openly, transparently, and in order. Order. He has a supernatural divine order, and that is who we are in Christ. And we're to be different. That's why it says in Exodus 11 and verse 7, God puts a difference between Egypt, the people of Egypt in their, in their unsaved state, and those that are Israel, those that are his chosen people, there's a difference. And the two don't go together. There's a huge difference. And that's why it says the same thing in 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. It says the same thing in Joshua 24 and verse 15. He said, I'm not, Joshua 24 verse 15, the rest of the world can live in sin, but as far as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what that means? Worship him. Worship him. And I won't be ashamed. I will not be ashamed of who I am in Christ. Never be ashamed. 
I will never be ashamed, and we should never be ashamed of who we are in Christ, because that's just the activity of the flesh and of the enemy trying to make us ashamed of what God gave us in terms of his very best, the spotless Son of God. So back to, back to the fact that he's the spotless lamb. That is why you and I, there's no spot in us in Song of Solomon 4 and verse 7. It says, you are all fair, my love. There's no spot in you. There's not a single thing in us that has to be dealt with by God. It's already been dealt with. He just has to bring us to that place in our proper understanding. Because if we don't go forward with the truth, don't go forward with, with the word of God and understanding it, in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, if we don't, then we just go back to the flesh. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Okay? The battle's not ours in Exodus 14, 14. The battle's the Lord's. We're to stand still, like it says in the types there in Exodus 14 and verse 13. Stand still. Why? It's finished. Rest. Stand still. And then you'll see the deliverance that's yours. And so, again, the weapons of our warfare in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 are what? Are not carnal, but mighty, dynamite, explosive power through God. Listen to what it says. To the pulling down of strongholds, these areas of the flesh where we still function just like the world, just like Lot. He was a, but he had pleasure. You'll see that in Genesis 18 and 19, specifically the 19th chapter, where he, his soul was vexed by the ungodly. You know, they had arts and crafts and all, but they just didn't have God. And his soul was vexed by the ungodly. And, it ha- and it, he had to be pulled out of there <laughs> because that was going to be judged and destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the world system. Any pleasure there? Anything like, you know, Jesus says in John 17 and verse 14, he was in the world system, but he wasn't of it. Not of it. And neither are we in John 17 and verse 16. You know, that's his high priestly prayer for us the depth of his heart for us. That's the Lord's prayer. We are not of the world at all. We're not of the world. We're not of the world. We are of Christ. We are of the body of Christ. We are of this this local assembly that God has given us where the protection of his love is active. And that's why we have this local assembly. So again, if his humanity wasn't perfect and everything about us wasn't dealt with, would there have been a resurrection? No. The resurrection proves two things. You know, this is very serious in terms of people's salvation. You know, and not being ashamed to give them the gospel, to tell them. And not fear rejection because it's eternal truth. Eternal realities, hell's real, lake of fire's real. And people go there like this. People go to hell and ultimately cast into the lake of fire. This is, these are realities. They're present realities. And we have without being driven, but without fear either, 
But in a relaxed state, as God gives us the opportunity to do so, because the resurrection in Acts 17 and verse 30, uh, 31, the resurrection, there's going to be a resurrection. The resurrection proves the first thing, no judgment for us. But for all those that are outside of Christ, judgment's coming to them. Simple as that. It's what Acts 17 and verse 31 states. And I'll just read these as we, we finish here. And this has to do with his impeccable humanity. And, and we have, and that even the fact that we're going to get these new bodies is in, in, in uh, Philippians 3 and verse 20 and 21, we're going to get these brand new bodies based upon the fact of, of his impeccable humanity in, in a glorified state. But here, here it says this. This is our message. This is the message that we have for people. And this is in Acts 10. In verse 43, it says, To him, to him Christ, give all the prophets witness, testimony, that through his name, his nature, his person, and what he's accomplished, that whosoever believes in him, receives him as their Savior, will receive remission of sins. But if not, and they, they die in their sins, they're cast into, the, into hell, which is the holding cell, like prison. Then they're brought up, and they have to face Christ for their sins. And there's no second chance. There's not such a thing as a u- universalism. Everyone's going to get out of hell. Absolutely incorrect. Boy, I'll tell you, we love people. <laughs> Boy, if we truly love them. And that might mean being rejected too, by the way, right? <clears throat> that they'll be cast in, 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 and then ultimately you have to face Christ and know that there he was. They look in his eyes, his eyes of love. But then they're cast into the lake of fire. Unbelievable. But here is our message. And we'll close with this in Acts 13. Acts 13, 38, it says this. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren. Men here is everyone, unsaved. And brethren, born again. See? Born again. You need to get born again. Men, all unsaved. Brethren, you need to be taught this truth. That through this man, this man, and this man only, Acts 4.12, there's only one name, and the name speaks of nature and accomplishment of his work in Acts 4.12. There's one name given unto heaven whereby men must be saved. It is the name Christ Jesus. There's one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. And that's what Job was praying for in Job 9 and verse 33. His prayer was, I wish there was one that could touch me and my humanity and touch God. And that's Jesus Christ who, who removed all that distance between because he put on humanity and became the sin sacrifice and did so much more And again. We see this here. Be it known unto you, therefore, men, unsaved, and brethren, born again, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified, cleared of all guilt and condemnation, justified from all things. How many? All things. 
from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses or by trying to do good or being a good person. There's no such thing as good people, by the way. It's only born again ones. Only good is in God, based upon Exodus 34 and verse 6. Matthew 19, 17 and 18, Luke 18 and verses 18 and 19. The only good is in Christ himself. Because I know in me that's in my flesh dwells what? No good. No good. There's no pleasure in it. Romans 7, 18. And when we live in the flesh, how to perform that which we find, which we see is right, we find not. See, all kinds of it. Do away with it. (laughs) And thank God he has positionally with us and how he has to do that with us in experiential growth and understanding through this sanctifying, separating process in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. So we see very, very clearly he is and he is, was and is the spotless lamb of God. Spotless. And thank God for us as we close this morning here. In 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, those that are mine now in Christ, because it's based upon John 1, 1 through 10, my little children see that you sin not, meaning we do not have to. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> sin is in the will, I choose to sin. But love is in the will, I choose to love. And so, see that you sin not. But if any of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? And he is the what? Who is he? He's, he's the halasmos. And there's three Greek words about propitiation, and we'll get into them at a different time. There's, there's three different Greek words for that. It's halasmos. Helisterion and Halaskeste. Three different ones. He is. He is the mercy seat, brought out in the type in Exodus 25, 17 to 22. He is that very type. Okay. He's the place, Helisterion, and he's the one who propitiated the Father. Helisgastheus. I think I mispronounced that one with a lisp. <laughs> so you have to forgive me. And so, my little children, see that you sin not. You don't have to. But if you do, we, Christ, those that are in Christ, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sins. But never says, and also for the sins of the world. Never says that. It says for the world. That's potential. And here is our, here's what Christ has given us for the unsaved. Here's what he's given us. Watch, and I, I am going to close with this because I think this is three strikes and I'm out. This is 2 Corinthians 5 <clears throat> and verse 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's us in Christ when we receive him. Old things are passed away. They're not in the process of passing away. It's not something that I have to do about it. They already, past tense, passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. I see everything. I see see sin in the newness of who I am. I see what the world is. I see how people live outside of it. I have nothing to do with it. I hang with God's people. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And all things are of God for us. 
who has reconciled us to himself. You see propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation right here. Reconciled us to himself by and through Jesus Christ and has, listen to this, has given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ, right? God was in Christ, Christ is in us, and we're in him, and we now have the message of reconciliation to the unsaved. That God was in Christ, reconciling, this is potential, not violating wills, potential, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That's potential. It is for us in a reality potential for them. And has committed, notice this, and has given in us and to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now then, listen to what it says. We are ambassadors for Christ. Do I live like the world to try and win them? Never. Remember the difference that God puts between. We are ambassadors. What's an ambassador? You have a message to deliver. <laughs> you know, you could die like this. And instantly, instantly, it's not over. It's just beginning for all eternity. Very serious. He, has, he made us ambassadors. We are Ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech the unsaved by us. Please, we, we beseech you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. He loves you. Your sins can be dealt with. Your old nature can be crucified. You can spend eternity bathing in his love for you. For he, God, made him, Jesus Christ the Son, to be the sin sacrifice for us who knew no sin. See, he never had a sin nature. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a privilege. What an absolute privilege. And what an amazing truth that we have. And Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the spotless Lamb of God, spotless, impeccable humanity, Thank you so much for our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, all that he went through, the six trials, the beatings, having his beard ripped out, men spitting on him in Isaiah 50, verse 6, beaten before the cross, beaten to a pulp so that you couldn't even recognize him, his perfect, beautiful humanity, in Isaiah 52, and verse 14, beaten to a pulp, and then crucified on Calvary with all of our sins put upon him, the precious, pure, spotless lamb who did all of that, and that's so potential for all our loved ones, our friends, and whosoever, as God opens up and gives us the opportunity to be his ambassadors with this awesome message. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have. We... we, we we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And we rest in your love and in your peace that leads us. Father, thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.